For our call to worship this morning inside your bulletin is a responsive reading from the 84th Psalm, Psalm 84. And here the psalmist speaks about how he loves to be in the house of God. In all likelihood, it was a time in which he could not be there. And he envied, we read here, he envied the birds. At least the birds could make a nest and be there. And he envied them for that. But his longing was to be in God's house. And the reason he wanted to be there was because that's where God's special presence is always known. And as we gather together, he's promised to be with us. And so that makes this a very special time when we know of God's presence among us. Will you stand with me and let us call one another to worship with this responsive reading? How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! The birds also has found a house, and the swallows a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King, my God, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. What a wonderful statement. I'd rather just stand in the threshold, just barely get in the door to God's house, than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now take your hymns of grace, the hymns of grace turning to 354, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. 354 hymns of grace.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can again come before you this Lord's Day morning, assembled together in the name of our Lord Jesus, to honor and glorify you. And we confess that without him we can do nothing, that without him we would not and could not come before you at all, because before you saved us by your grace, through faith in him alone, we were no different than those in the mob that day he died, who mocked him and scorned him and beat him and said, Crucify him. But you had mercy on us and caused us to be born again of the Spirit and the Word of God and granted us faith and repentance. And so, Father, if there are any here who do not truly know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we pray that you would use the glory and power of your word proclaimed today to draw them into the kingdom of your dear Son and give them eternal life with him. May Christ be the treasure of all our hearts today, and may our worship be pleasing to you and according to your will, our Father. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now again, taking your hymns of grace and turning to 272, 272, the power of the cross, 272.
Our consecutive reading today through the New Testament is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Mark, chapter 15, and as you turn there in your Bibles, you'll see chapter 15 begins with early in the morning, depending on which uh, translation you have, early in the morning. And it's a continuation of the events that have happened all throughout the previous night, the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed. He had eaten the Passover meal with his disciples, and then there was his praying in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal of Judas, the phony trial before the high priest in the Sanhedrin with the false charges and the false witnesses, which concluded with them giving him the death sentence for blasphemy. And then last, just before dawn, the denial of Peter. But now here in chapter 15, in the early morning, they set about to convince Pontius Pilate to concur with their sentence because the Jews could not administer the death penalty and um, they wanted Pilate to administer the Roman death penalty, which was crucifixion. So Mark chapter 15, hear now the word of the living and true God. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. And answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. And the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with transgressors. 
Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came and a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Again, this morning, as we seek our God together in prayer, we especially want to remember the Trinity Baptist Church with Pastor Chong there in Hong Kong. So let us seek our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, what a sight that must have been to see all the suffering persecution, the mockery, the beating, even the crucifixion that our Savior went through for us. But Father, the greatest pain of all would have been the pain of, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As that one who knew no sin became sin for us. But Father, we're thankful for the shedding of his blood, for your word tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so while the scene is terrible, and while we cry out with the hymn writer, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, and why we are grieved over the fact that Jesus Christ took our sins upon himself, how thankful we are 
and how we rejoice because apart from his work, we would be all men most miserable and our only hope of heaven and our only hope of being reconciled to God is that work of Jesus Christ as he was as he died there on the cross, was buried and yet rose again. Father, we're thankful for that work and that gospel and how we pray that that gospel may be proclaimed throughout our own state and around the world this day. And upon hearing that gospel, men might bow their knee to King Jesus, turning away from their sins and believing upon Him that they might gain eternal life. Father, we pray that You'll bless the preaching of Your Word wherever it goes forth to Your glory and Your honor. But Father, we're thankful for the work there in Hong Kong. We thank You for this church that has been established. Pray You'll bless Pastor Chong as he seeks to shepherd the people of God there in that place. We know that one of their concerns and prayer requests are that You would raise up men who would be able to serve there in that church. And we would ask that for them. We would intercede that, Father, You would bring in men, that You would save them and then add them to the church and then use them for the good of Your people. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity that Pastor Chong not not only has to shepherd this church, but also as he labors to minister and help other men who are seeking to be faithful pastors of your word. May you bless, we pray, his opportunities to come along beside them and benefit them in days to come. But we thank you for them and thank you for the fellowship and the relationship that we have with them, those who are so many, many miles away from us. And then, Father, we would ask you to come and meet with us in particular this morning. We pray that you would draw near to us, make your presence to be known as your word is open. Come and minister unto us by your spirit as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before we come to open the word of God, take the Trinity hymn book, turning to 271, 271. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. Two. 7-1 Trinity Hymn Book. Let's stand together as we sing.
Well, if you haven't noticed already, I'm going to interrupt our study of the book of Deuteronomy and have us turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Some of you may be aware why I'm interrupting our study in Deuteronomy. In the providence of God, we look forward to bringing Beth Yankee into membership this morning. That's unusual for us in this fact that we usually do it on the first Sunday of the month as we gather around the Lord's table. But due to providential hindrances, Beth wasn't able to be with us last week, so we postponed it for a week. And I decided we would bring her in in the morning worship service to do something different and perhaps encourage others with regard to the whole area of membership and the importance of it. And so at the conclusion of this service, we look forward to bringing her in to this fellowship because of her desire to be committed to you as a church. Church membership is not something that we take lightly, and it's something that no Christian should take lightly. It is interesting that when Jesus Christ speaks of the church, or when the New Testament speaks of the church, it speaks of her not as just single individuals, but as a community of believers that have been joined together. As you read through the New Testament, you will find the church is a definite group of individual believers who can be counted, they can be added to, they have the responsibility of selecting leaders and representatives, they are to gather officially together, they carry out church discipline, they observe the Lord's table in a corporate way, all these we see taking place with a body of believers that come together as a local assembly. God never intended His people to live on an island by themselves, but He envisioned them coming together and making up this body or this community of His people, and, and what's wonderful about this community is that He said that when this community comes together, there I'll be in their midst. Now someone may say to me, wait a minute, Pastor. I thought God was omnipresent. I thought God was everywhere at all times. And that is a truth. God is omnipresent. But what He has promised His church is this, that when you come together, I'm going to meet with you in a very special way. And that's why He says there in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together in My name, 
And if you read the context in which that statement is made, it is within the local church. He says, there I am in the midst of you. And it ought to be our desire that each time that we meet together corporately, we are not enamored by a big building or interesting stained glass windows. We're not enamored with whether or not we have a praise band or whether or not we have a children's program or a youth group. What ought to gather us together with great anticipation is that when we come together, God is with us. And there ought to be a real sense of disappointment if when we gather together, you leave here without a sense that God met with us. It is my prayer, and I trust the prayer of all God's people, that when anyone would come in among us, that what strikes them is not our good looks. We might fail in that category. But what strikes them is the seriousness and the sense of God being here and meeting with us. And so I thought I would take this morning to have you consider with me what does God commend in the assembly of God's people? What is it that God sees as we gather together that would make Him smile? What is it? Is it just simply being here? Is it the fact that you got up this morning, you put on decent clothes, and you showed up, perhaps some of you carried a Bible in, you've sat here, you've sang, you've prayed, you've heard the Word of God read to us, is that in and of itself enough to say God smiles upon us? I want you to consider with me what the Apostle Paul says about the church at Rome because what he says about the church of Rome, he commends them for. And as I thought about this one verse and what it says, I, tr I pray that that might be said of us. And I pray that we might grow in these things. And I pray that we will encourage one another with these things. So I want you to consider the one verse, Romans chapter 15 and verse 14. Paul says... And concerning you, my brethren, 
I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Paul is convinced of certain things concerning the church there at Rome. The term that he uses here, I am convinced, is a term that really means I am persuaded. Now remember, the Apostle Paul has never been to the church at Rome. He's heard about them. He's met with various individuals from that church. At the close of this letter, chapter 16, he mentions several of those who are involved in this assembly. But he's never been there himself. But what he has heard and what he has come to know through the visits of the various individuals, he says to them, I am persuaded... It's the same terminology that's used in Romans 8.38 where Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities and so forth is able, or the love of God, you're not going to be separated from. I'm persuaded of that reality. This is the same terminology he uses here. I am convinced that when it comes to this local church, there are three things that they are commended for. And, and if you read the verse of Scripture, you can see the three points that will come through this message. Paul's evaluation consists of these three things. You are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Let's take them one at a time. First of all, Paul says concerning this church, you are full of goodness. What did Paul mean by that? Is he simply saying, you're just a bunch of good people. The term that he uses means uprightness. It means Righteousness. It means kindness, moral excellence. Now that sounds a bit contrary to what the Apostle Paul has said about people in general. Right? Remember in Romans chapter 3, Paul is writing about the sinfulness of men by nature. He's, he's writing about the depravity of man, how sinful man is. Remember from, from chapter 1 and, and verse 19 through chapter 3, I mean, Paul's just setting before this, his hearers the reality that, that men need Christ because of their sinfulness. And in Romans chapter 3, he says this, There is none righteous, no, not one. He then goes on in describing men, this, and describes them this way, There is none that does good, 
Not even one. Paul tells us that men in their natural state are not good. They are not. There's none that does good. There's none that does righteous. Isaiah tells us all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Remember in Matthew chapter 19, when the rich man came to Christ and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may attain eternal life? And Christ answered that man like this, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one that is good. In Mark's account of this, we read, There is no one good except God alone. Now, if that's true, how can Paul look at this local church in Rome and commend them for being full of goodness? How does that happen? Well, let's take a moment and listen to the Apostle's own testimony and about the radical change that took place in his life. Let's look over to Philippians. Paul's testimony is given to us in the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Paul here in this chapter is, is giving us his spiritual biography. And he says, verse 4, Although I myself have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, he's saying anybody who thinks they are good in of themselves, I ought to be in the front of the line. Paul says, I really believed I was one of the best. I was one of the good guys. That's what I thought. And here's why. He says, he gives a description of himself. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Paul's saying here, do me a favor, compare your resume to mine. When it comes to really good things in the flesh, how do you stack up compared to me? I was, I was circumcised on the eighth day. You, you can't become much more Jewish than that. 
I, I was from the nation of I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee, a religious leader of my day. When, when it comes to obeying the law, I was blameless. No one could point their finger and accuse me of wrongdoing, so I thought. I really believed that I was a good man in the sight of God. But notice what it says. Verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing greatness or value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul says, there's a radical change that took place in my life. And I realized all those things that I was depending upon to make me right with God, they were of no value. Whatever I had accomplished in my life, they were all tainted with sin. And God is too holy to look upon sin. So all those so-called good things that I have done are never going to make me reconciled to God. Are never going to make me right with God. There's only one way in which a man can be found right with God. And Paul says that's through Jesus Christ. Seeking to obey the law does not make a man righteous. Because we've broken the law of God. And God demands perfect righteousness. God's demand is, you must be perfectly righteous in my sight for me to, gain, for me to give you acceptance. And every man says, I can never reach that standard. I could never be that righteous in and of myself. It can never happen. So God says, here's what I'll do. I'll send my perfect Son, who is perfectly righteous. And He will take your sin and the punishment that you deserve, and by faith you'll receive His righteousness so that in Christ Jesus, being united to Him, God sees a perfect righteousness and He accepts me as one of His own. So it can be said, there's a righteous man. Not because of anything he has done, but because of what Christ has done on his behalf. And as we gather together as a group of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God sees us. And, and, and here's what's amazing. He says they're full of goodness. Now I think that's amazing. That God would ever look upon me and say, there's a righteous man. 
because I know how unrighteous I am. But because of his son, there's a righteousness that now belongs to me. So we can say that as a church, we are not perfect. We are not a perfect people. But we have a perfect Savior. We are not blameless. We are guilty. But we have one who took that guilt on our behalf. So when Paul commends the church at Rome and says to them, you are full of goodness, he is not saying, you know, I'm just impressed with you people by yourself. I mean... You just are just a bunch of, no, no, left to ourselves. You know what he sees in us. He looks here and sees us and he must go, oh. But thank God he doesn't because he sees the righteousness of his son for all who believe in him. And so as a church, we ought to be a people that are committed to Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And and the testimony of the church ought to be, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. That's my only hope. So they're full of goodness. Secondly, they are filled with all knowledge. They are filled with with all knowledge. So what's Paul saying about the church at Rome? Is he saying, you're a bunch of know-it-alls? You know everything? That's not what he's saying. When Paul commends this church for being filled with knowledge, he does so in a way that, that it's found in what we would call the perfect tense, which simply means this. That they have known God and His truth and they continue to know God in His truth. They were not only a good church, but they were a doctrinally sound church. They were theologically sound. There was a spiritual knowledge and a practical application of that knowledge among them. They were people who as the writer of Proverbs says, who buys the truth and will not let it go. They were a group of people who were filled with a knowledge of God Himself and His truth. And His truth. Turn over now to Colossians. Philippians, Colossians chapter 1. Paul begins this letter to the church at Colossae. And he does so by just rejoicing in in what he has heard concerning their faith in Christ. He says to this church at Colossae, I'm delighted to hear that, that you are people who have been united to Christ by faith and that you're known for your love for Him. And in light of that, Paul says this, notice verse 9, For this reason, 
Seeing how you are a people who have faith in Christ and, and you love God, you love His gospel, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul says to the church at Colossae, this local assembly, here's how I'm praying for you. That you are ever increasing, growing, being filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, when we think of the will of God, oftentimes people think about events or circumstances. Where am I going to go to school? Should I leave this job or should I take the new job? Should, should, I, should I marry this guy or not? You know, we think about that being the will of God. But, but Paul doesn't have that in mind here. What Paul is speaking about is, I pray that you know more of God's truth. That you're growing in God's truth. That you're maturing in your walk with God. That as believers, you are filled controlled by and dominated with the will of God for your life. Paul is praying that their lives are totally controlled by the knowledge of God's will so that in every circumstance of my life, in, in everything that I am as an individual, that the, will, that the Word of God gives me direction with regard to how I live, and, and I seek to live by what He says. So what am I? I'm a citizen. Does God give us directions on how we're to live as citizens? I'm a husband. Does God tell me how I ought to live as a husband? I'm a father. Does God give me directions with regard to my responsibility with my children? I'm a churchman. Does God give me some direction to what that looks like and, and how I ought to live? There is no area of my life where God's Word should not have an effect upon how I live. When I go to work, does God's Word have something to say about how I work? How industrious I am? Does God's Word say anything about that? Does God and His Word affect every part of your life? That's what Paul is saying about the church at Rome. You are filled with knowledge. You want to know His truth, and you want to live by that truth. Ezra is a good example of that. In Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, we read, For Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord, 
and to practice it and teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra was a man who studied the Word, who, who practiced the Word before he taught the Word. Are we people who by God's grace live our lives according to the standard of God's Word and His will? St. Clair Ferguson says, the will of God means death to our own will and resurrection only when we have died to all of our own plans. It should be the aim of every Christian to have his will directed by the will of God revealed in Scripture. It's not my will, but it's God's will. So what I am as a Christian man is not dictated by my whims or what I want, but what does the Word of God say? And will I obey it? Will I obey it? Notice Paul says there, we pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does that mean? It means this. Paul's saying, you take the Word of God, you principalize it, bring about principles, and then you seek to practice it. You, you live by that Word. Legan Duncan says this, Wisdom is the work of the Spirit in us, and understanding is the application of the spiritual wisdom to be practical to the practical situations of our daily lives. Here's how we ought to live. Here's what God's word says. That means I've got to practice that in my life every day. This is not a book that's simply to be used on Sunday and then put on the shelf all week long. It is a book that ought to affect our lives every day. Or as D.L. Moody said, every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Think about that. Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Or Vance Habner, the old preacher of old, he said, what you live is really what you believe. Everything else is so much religious talk. What you live is really what you believe. Everything else is so much religious talk. Filled with the knowledge for the church at Rome doesn't mean that there is this this cold orthodoxy, this boring doctrine that's set before the people, but it is a living word that affects my very life. The truth of God's word isn't just boring doctrine, but it is the very thing that ought to affect 
what I am every day of my life. That's to be filled with knowledge. Paul wants us to be wealthy. That doesn't mean you should have went out and bought the lottery ticket this week. It means he wants you to know God and wants you to know his truth and live by that truth. And then finally, and more briefly, not only does Paul commend them for their goodness, which means they are a people who are taken up with Christ, and not only are they a people filled with knowledge, which means they are people who love His truth, but thirdly, notice what it says. If you're not there, go back to Romans 15 and verse 14. And he says this, you are able then to admonish one another. You're able to admonish one another. And the terminology that he uses means this. It means to place into the mind. Place into the mind. They, they were people who came along beside each other to aid each other in their walk with God. They're a community of believers who love one another, who want to see each other growing in the things of God. They don't sit back and say, well, you know, we pay the pastor, don't we? What are we paying him for? Let him go around and take care of everybody else. No, we love one another, and that love is demonstrated in how we seek to help each other and come along beside each other to see each other growing in the things of God. It means there are times I may need to warn you. There are consequences to certain actions. And if I see you heading in a way that concerns me, I have a responsibility to go and say, Brother, I'm concerned about you. Brother, I, I saw the way you spoke to your wife yesterday, and, and that concerns me a little bit. Are, are, are things okay between you and her? Or, 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 you know, I mean, I, don't, I may have saw it wrong. You come humbly. You, you, you come with a desire to help. You don't come with accusations that may not be founded. But, but, but I, I just want to be there for you. You see, if we're going to have this type of life together then we can't be content with simply saying, I'm going to show up on Sunday morning, hear a sermon, go home, and that'll be it. That's my responsibility. No, as a body of Christ, as this community, as this family, we're concerned about each other. And we want to be a benefit to one another. We ought to pray and desire to be used by God to instill within others a deeper hunger for Christ, a deeper hunger for His Word, a deeper pursuit of godliness. They admonish each other. Let me ask you a question. How effective are you in caring for the brethren? And coming along beside them and being a benefit in their walk with God? That, that's what this church was commended for. They were commended because there was such a love 
that they had for God, for His truth, that they wanted to see everyone else prosper in the things of God. And so you see, my friend, when it comes to those things that brings a smile to God's face as He sees a local assembly gathered together, the smile doesn't come because every pew is filled. The smile doesn't come because they have a pastor who, who can sing or, or who can act or, or who can draw or something else. The smile of God comes when He sees a local assembly full of goodness, a heart towards Christ, filled with knowledge, a mind and feet that seek to live by His truth, and then a mouth that speaks to others to help them in their walk with God. When God sees that in a local assembly, God smiles. Is God smiling this morning? So we have to ask the question, do I know Christ? Is He my only hope? Do I understand that my good works can never get me to heaven, but it only comes through Christ and Christ alone? Does He see that in us? Does He see a people that loves His Word? And, and when His Word is clear, I must be obedient to that Word. That there's no part of my life that I'm trying to hide from God. I, I don't come to God and say, God, here's my life. And if it's a house, you can have the whole house. Oh, except for this one room in the house. That's mine. Don't touch that. Or do we say, Lord, the whole house is yours. I want to be obedient. I want my life to be a walking Bible to others. And do we love and care for one another? with a desire to see each other grow in the things of God. You see, when it comes to the local church, it's a matter of your heart, your mind, and your mouth. A heart for Christ. A mind for His Word. And I would say feet for His Word. And a mouth that admonishes and helps others. May that be our prayer as a church. And whether we have 60 or whether we have 300 or 500, may the thing that we pray for most often is, Lord, make us a people who have a heart towards Christ, mind toward His Word, and a mouth that will admonish others so that you may smile. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the direction that Your Word gives to us. And Father, we pray this morning that each one of us may honestly look at our own lives and see that we're in Christ. And if not, that today would even be a day of salvation. Father, we pray that we would be a church that loves the truth and seeks to live by that truth. 
and that we would love each other and care for each other and admonish each other. Help us in these areas. Father, we're thankful for the assembly that you've given to us and pray that you would help us to shine as lights in the midst of darkness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now before we sing our closing song, I'm going to ask Beth if she would come up and stand with me. I'm going to ask the other church officers if they will come up. You what? You right there. What do you want to be? We are, I, I trust most of you have read Beth's testimony. And what a delight to hear how God has worked in her life. What an interesting journey she went on to get here. And, and what a small world this is. If you know anything, she went to Indiana Wesleyan. And uh, while she was in Indiana Wesleyan, ended up going to Edgewood Baptist Church in Anderson, Indiana, which we have some contact with, right? Uh, it was one of the churches that was very instrumental in seeing this church started. I had the privilege of laboring there for a year, uh, many, many, many years ago. And so little did I know many, many years ago that one day a young lady by the name of Beth would show up in Anderson and then come back to... Uh, northern Ohio, southern Indiana, Michigan, and uh, come over to the church. And so that's something of her journey. I trust most of you know that because you've read her testimony. And now her desire is to commit to this fellowship, to this body of believers. And we're thankful for that. She's been a blessing to us already. And I trust we've been something of a blessing to you. And that uh, we'll continue to do so uh, for years to come. I don't know what God has for you in the future, but if He keeps you in this area, it's fine by me. All right, And we'll see what God does. But again, we take membership very seriously. And one of the things we, we every member of the church has covenanted together to do is what I'm going to ask you about now. Okay? So I'm going to read these and hopefully you'll say yes to everyone. If you say no to one of them, we may... <laughs> I have to step back a minute, but anyway. As a church, we agree to worship only the one true and living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has revealed Himself in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, and we will have no other gods before Him. Agree? We agree to worship God in His appointed way and to exclude from our worship anything that He has not appointed. And we agree to use the name of our not to use the name of our God emptily or to take it upon ourselves carelessly, but to walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And we agree to cease from our own works on the Lord's day if they are not works of mercy, piety, or necessity, and to positively sanctify the day by special exercise of public and private worship. And we agree to honor and obey within the bounds of Scripture all our superiors, whether in family, church, state, or business, and if we be superiors, to deal reasonably and lovingly with our subordinates and thus to teach them by word and example to fear God and keep His commandments. And we agree to avoid whatever tends to destroy our neighbor or to engage vigorously in all 
lawful endeavors to preserve our own lives and the lives of others, especially by ready reconciliation and faithful exhortation in the church. And we agree to possess our bodies in holiness as vessels joined to Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit and to avoid all uncleanliness thought of, of thought, speech, and action. And we agree to be diligent in our vocation that we may provide for our own household, avoid the theft of time, money, and goods, and to have to give to him who has need. And we agree to earnestly promote the truth among men and to avoid anything that would prejudice the truth or injure our neighbor's good name. And we agree to fully be content with our own condition in life, to rejoice in the advancement of our neighbors and to avoid envying him or coveting anything that is his. Well, on behalf of the congregation, well, first of all, let's pray. Let's give thanks to God for this one that he has now added to our family. Now, Brother Ken Brown, would you lead us in that prayer of thanksgiving, please? Lord, Heavenly Father, this is a joyous occasion that we have today, and, and we welcome Beth into our family, and we, we just thank you for this privilege. And we pray that, Father, that by the gifts that you have bestowed upon her, that you would use them to edify the church, that she would uh, find joy in, in working and, and uh, giving of herself uh, for your glory and honor. And so, Father, we thank you uh, for Beth and, and uh, we just pray, Lord, that Bless her with growth and the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to have the officers rec um, represent the church for a moment, and we'll welcome you into membership. Most people do it by a right hand of shaking the hand, but I'm a hugger, if you don't mind. So I'm going to say, welcome to the church. Delighted. All right, Beth, don't go anywhere. Oh. All right, we're going to sing the closing hymn, 280. I'll take it away. All right, this will be our closing hymn, and then once this is done, we'll have Beth remain here. And then especially those of you who are members of the church, I want you to come up and, and welcome her into the church as well. 280 in the Trinity Hymn Book.
having lunch together and 